Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides on the quest to RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. In our main podcast episodes, we discuss D&D 5e's core rules and ever-expanding content, while also showcasing other RPG systems and bringing you fresh, new projects from indie content creators. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world you're playing in, because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. In a world headed for disaster, five strangers with mysterious pasts are thrown together by the winds of fate to try to stop the unseen forces that threaten to destroy their world. Join Creval, a dragonborn with no memory and no past, who is the first of the barbarians of the mountains to be seen in a thousand years. Cotter, a penniless paladin, running from something or someone in his past. No one, the only tiefling monk the kingdom has ever seen, who has been expelled from his monastery for reasons he has not revealed. Adri, his monastic companion who hides some deep dark secret she cannot reveal. And Arlen, once a simple farmer, until some mysterious event manifested sorcerous powers in him. They must travel the length and breadth of the kingdom of Faroe, searching for the disparate clues that will help them unravel the mystery of the failing of their land, while trying to hold together the unraveling threads of society's weave threatening to come apart at any moment. They will have to battle nature, plague, politics, and even the forces of the underworld as they attempt to discover and defeat whoever, or whatever, is attempting to poison their world and throw it into chaos. Relic of the Past is a novel-length story told via a clean, custom, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons game. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are found, and at poolmedia.podbean.com. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. So we are plowing once again through all of our Critical Role content here for the month of April. We're going to be continuing that tonight with our deep dive into the latest Critical Role book, Call of the Nether Deep, with a very special guest, resident critter and Patreon subscriber and friend of the show and voice of Alari, the changeling from the actual play, Jen. Welcome to Tabletop Journeys. Hi guys, how you been? You know, how's the night? It We're doing night fabulous. Night. How are you tonight? We I am great. doing well. It's been a day, hasn't it? Nice, bright, <laughs> sunny, warm weather, and then. <laughs> yeah. It was not nice and sunny and warm. It, it rained all day, and it got up to about forty-two degrees. So it was not. It was, there was no warm nor sun, nor 
anything up here. As I said at the show opening here tonight, we are going to be doing our deep dive into the latest and greatest book. Wait, wait, from- wait. Oh, wait. Is that wait, pun wait. intended? Which one? Deep dive. Oh. <laughs> the call of another deep. You yeah, know, this submerged I mean, underwater it was, city. It was uh, It was not intentional, but uh, it is certainly applicable uh, to uh, the watery depths known as, as the nether deep here. And if you have listened to our interview last week with Hannah Rose, we talked around a lot of the concepts in the book. We're going to be diving into a lot of those tonight in more depth here. But the reasons more specifically that we have brought Jen on tonight is because, as we said, she is a a critter of renown and has uh, has look she's been bugging us for years to go ahead and talk about critical role on the show and so we figured what better way to go ahead and uh, fulfill this obligation to one of our beloved patreon subscribers but not only to do an entire month of critical role content to get her off our back but also to go ahead uh, and invite her on and to invite her and, onto the show and uh, invite her onto the show so uh, jen talk to us a little bit about introduce yourself to our audience here uh who do who are you? Why do you do? And uh, talk to us about your involvement, with, uh, not involvement with Critical Role, but talk to us about wish. your life with Critical Role and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Talk I'm to us about the Jen. Yeah, there you go. Apparently the pain in the back or neck or whatever piece of anatomy you desire. I mean, beloved. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> I've been playing D&D for probably a total three years. I started back in, I think it was 95 when I was in the Air Force. I got hooked. I loved it. I think that was 2E back then. I played a ranger, believe it or not, and as things go in the military, people went their separate ways. We all got, you know, orders, and I never found another game again. I've been wanting to find a game. I've been wanting to find people, and then right at the beginning, either the end of 2018 or 20, or the beginning of 19, my youngest went and started playing these animatics on YouTube and insisted that I listen to some of them. And what they were, where it was where people were drawing scenes from Critical Role and then using the voice from Critical Role with the animatic. And it, it was intriguing. So I was like, okay, what is this? And I started watching. And I can honestly say that if it wasn't for Critical Role, I probably would not have looked for a game as incessantly as I did. And I probably wouldn't have found the drinking and dragons game that introduced me to Lee and then to Glenn and then to Josh. So if it wasn't for crit roll, I never would have met you fine gentlemen. Oh, thank you very much. Critical role. uh, Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Critical role. At the moment. magical Whoa. organization that brings us all together. together. <laughs> In a circle. <laughs> In a circle. No. So, I, so it took me, I want to say about a year and a half. I was all caught up on season one and then halfway through campaign two, rather, by the time the pandemic hit and they went on hiatus, I got finished, caught up by the time they restarted. And I've been taking the beats as they come waiting each week for is it thursday yet and listening to them play the three of us are are old crotchety grognardy dungeon masters and storytellers and so i think that one of the things that we're really going to love about your perspective on today's show is the perspective from a player on this material because i know i will speak for myself here and i assume that my co-hosts here have also uh, significant thoughts on some of the things that are in this book from a storyteller point of view about how we can certain elements that we can lift to bring to our own games or certain aspects that we really we want to run and want to emphasize i'm curious to see what are your kind of overall thoughts on the book from a player perspective how do you feel about it 
Glenn asked me if I had the book and I said, yes. He said, have you read it? I said, well, I've skimmed it. He says, can you read it? I have questions. And I was like, okay, and I'll read it. And I didn't know why he, I thought he was just going to start throwing all these lore questions at me. What is this all about? What is that? I was really paying attention and reading. And at the same time, messaging Glenn every once in a while and going, oh, this and oh, wow, that. And I, so from a player standpoint, I was, I'm all in, I want to go play this. I, and it's going to be so hard to go, oh no, I know what's about to happen. It's going to be so hard not to do that. But I would really love to play this from the standpoint of somebody who's tried to DM twice. Tried. Wow. It's to me that, that aspect of it was like super intimidating. <clears throat> Having watched Matthew Mercer create a world, he, and it's so rich. And this book is the same way. It's so rich and it's, it's detail. so detailed. Not to say is that a person has to follow it beat for beat. But I would be like, okay, and now this is going to happen. And now the other thing is, okay, oh, they're going to yeah. do that. Oh, shoot. What do I go do? I got to look this up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which I uh, imagine y'all do somewhat, but. <laughs> I can give you a peep behind the curtain in the actual play campaign that you play in. We started running through the Candlekeep Mysteries. We've transitioned from the Candlekeep Mysteries to Wild Beyond the Witchlight. And this percentage has changed over time, but we're probably about 50% book material versus our own campaign material. And we use mm. sort of the book material as like scaffolding to hang our plot on. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. what that also means is that in any given session, not all of the material in a particular chapter of the book to the table or makes it to the game. I think that, so again, if you think back to the Candlekeep stuff, the first mission was almost exactly from the book. Like it was almost verbatim to the point that even when we did the editing, there were things that I cut out because I didn't think that they worked well. But then even if you look at the second chapter, which is the one that took place in Baldur's Gate there, if you look at that one, probably was about maybe 75 to 80% of the quest material and about 20% of original stuff. And then if you look by the Book of the Raven, the Book of the Raven, again, was the first one that was what happened in Wildly the game happened in the book, but it had totally different context because of the game that we were running. So that's very much the way that we do it here. And I think that your point about this book is that as a storyteller, uh, I wouldn't want to do that. I, I, I really like the way that this story is written and the way that the quest is put together. When we interviewed Hannah, she talked about how point A and point X are defined. But how you get from point A to point X is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. incredibly diverse. There are a million ways mm -hmm. to get there. Yeah, you could totally play this game more than one time and have it come out differently each mm -hmm. time. Exactly. Even with just the rivals, and that was one thing that I really liked. When you get to this, you get to this spot, this is your rivals are thinking this way or this way. And examples of how this person thinks. Yep. I really liked that. I really because i I don't think I've ever played a game where you had a rival party that either they're friendly or they are not liking you and maybe you're trying to kill them with sweetness and they're still going. Pfft. Yeah. Yeah. Answering your question in terms of how do you prepare? Just my quick take is for anybody out there, just keep in mind, you're not running this whole book at once. Yeah. You need to read the whole thing to understand the overall plot, but then for your next session, you only have to prepare for that section. So Right. The festival where everybody meets and gets to be introduced to their the rivals through the different events of the Festival of Merit. And it's a brilliant way to start it in the first place. But all you have to know to run that 
is the festival. Is that first chapter. No, and you might get to the final race at the end that concludes the festival in that first session, but I doubt that the whole thing would be played out in one session with yeah, most I of the parties that I run. One. Yeah. Uh, because just in the groups that you play in, Jen, everybody explores everything. Yes, that's, that would <laughs> yeah. be something to be really player-driven because I'm sure that there's players out there that are just like, okay, I'm just going to go to the next spot and do the high level. But that's that's what got us into you know Lee's game because we dug in too much. It was supposed to be a one shot. It became a two shot. And now he's locked into us with a campaign. I wanted to give a great example of what Glenn was mentioning about how you have to know overall where things are, but you only have to study the part that's right there. And I'm going to give this example knowing that part of it is a little wrought with social peril. I'm not supporting anything that individual has done or said, but I'm going to talk about Harry Potter for a brief moment. J.K. Rowling let one character know his individual arc specifically so he could play the nuances early on. And it made other actors wonder why he would play things in a certain way because nobody else knew that Snape was actually a good guy. Everybody thought Snape was a bad guy until the script came out where it was actually revealed. And that allowed them to play off him as in a certain way that allowed him to play off them knowing more than they knew. And that's why he always came across as knowing more than they knew. With Alan Rickman, such a fantastic actor, but without that little bit of knowledge up front, he could not have played those nuances. So DM does have to know the overall flow of the whole adventure so they know how to play the, the rivals in given scenes. What I really mm -hmm. love about the way the book is written is the fact that in each scene where the rivals are present, there is that little blurb, depending on where they are. If they right. are positive or negative, here's the, the friendly, way hostile, or indifferent. Because you have that little bit of knowledge, every scene could change them one way or the other, move them back or forward or what have you. So it gives you the ability to play to the end game without giving it away. And I think yeah. that's exceptionally well done whoever decided that's the way they need to do that whether it's a, and it sounds from our interviews that that was a more of a group more of a group thing that they really picked it that was definitely the way to do that yeah and glenn you alluded to this a second ago i will say that in the way that the rivals were built and specifically in the way that kind of the relationship tracking mechanic for lack of a better term but the way that they every kind of touch point through the chapter they say if you do this is how you can expect the rivals to react and they all the different characters have different pluses different minuses and everything like that to go ahead and see how they all feel about you i think that this was something that we saw shadows of in the strixhaven book and even on some level in the wild beyond the witchlight where they had the whole campaign tracker about different things that you do are going to impact it but i do not think that it was as well formed in either of those two books as it was in this one and i thought that it was much more complete in this one and i thought that the way that they tied in the relationship mechanic into the plot so intimately because every single chapter had that if your if your rivals are hostile here's how how they will react when they run into you if they are friendly here's how they will react if they're indifferent here's how they will react and it really touched on all that stuff it even gave you a breakdown for how the group dynamic among the five members of their party would split because sure. these can all develop into separate relationships so yeah. one member of the rivals may really like three members of your party but hate the other two and vice yeah. versa and it even went so far as to tell you how they're, they'll split the decision for the overall party vibe. Yep. And yep. then you still can have the sheepish guy in the background going, bro, you're still my friend, but that's the boss. And she says, I got to stab you. And that 
relation yeah that relationship really brings a new level of complexity and depth yeah. to an adventure it's not something i've ever seen done well like this before what you mentioned there glenn was something that's like right out of civil war not my favorite i'm on record as saying it is not my favorite mcu film but i'm going to talk about one thing in that movie which is when widow and hawkeye are fighting that's exactly what you're talking about it's right. that rival relationship yeah. They're still friends, but they're still doing what they got to do. Yeah, we're still that friends when this is over. Perfect. Depends on how hard you hit me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in the book, even at one point, one of the one character that Glenn kind of alluded to, the the shy little guy going, "Sorry, I have to hit you," but it even says at one point that that a that their leader might be rival to your group. But that he, depending upon how you do things, he could still be friendly and could go visit you guys without right. the rest of his group knowing. Dermot, the priest guy. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And Ao is a little hot-headed and a little brash, but Written is a decent person. Like all of the rivals, none of them are bad. Yeah. Like, right. This could go either way when you're playing it. They could turn she into allies that help yeah. in the end, or friendly competition, or we're going to kill you in your sleep. It, you mentioned the Strixhaven book, Josh, and. I think the reason why it was not as well formed in Strixhaven as it is here is the context. Strixhaven was a school. It was made to mimic high school, college type environment. Right. And all of the negative things or positive things that that brings for each individual based on their own individual high school or college experiences really plays into how well that works. Whereas this doesn't have that context. This is just about, I met somebody at a festival I see them a couple days later, and we either had a good interaction or a bad interaction. I was in a fight. They were in a fight. I took off and ran. Now they don't respect me. Or I did what I could to help, and now they do respect me. Those are the types of things that are very different about the two. So the context is vastly different, even if the underlying mechanisms are fairly similar. Yeah, the stories that they're telling with this relationship mechanic are a lot better than they were in Strixhaven. Really, it's because they tried to make it specific. They made it narratively specific and gave a specific reaction. Because those same lines and veils could apply to this rivalry system, too. Once you get to that hated rival standpoint, some Mm -hmm. dastardly deeds could occur between the two groups. And it's at that point still all of the players and storytellers' responsibility to make sure that whatever lines and veils were established are respected. It's just not being specified. It's not saying that they're going to show up and heckle you at every show, but it's giving you ideas for how they're going to react. And then you as the DM has to come up with their behavior. You still got to work the same gig. That's yeah. where Strixhaven made its mistake is it was specific about exactly how they would be mean, spiteful, vain people. There's some other things early on in the book, especially that first chapter that I want to talk about. Just when you walk into that first city and meet people. And the the groups of puzzles and events and things that take place there. I don't want to give how to get things done away, but I will say every single one of them was awesome. I want to do every single one of those things. I think whenever I, the next time I do a festival in any of my homebrew campaigns, I am probably wholesale lifting these events. Uh, yep. They are that good. I totally agree. We loved the festival aspect in Wild Beyond the Witchlight. The first major chapter in Wild Beyond the Witchlight, when they are at the Witchlight Carnival, we loved that. But it was also a fey carnival. It had a lot of whimsy. It had a lot of in-jokes. It had a lot of lightness and a lot of frivolity and a lot of jokey, fun little things. This is still a festival. It's still full of festival things. 
but it definitely has a little bit more seriousness to it and not like in a bad way. It's not like it's not fun, but it's definitely a different vibe. And so, Mm -hmm. Jen, one of the things that I wanted to go ahead and ask you on, again, as being the resident uh, critical role expert here, is that how does the vibe of this book and the vibe of the campaign fit into sort of like the critical role ethos have they is nether deep uh, something that has been represented on the show or in the show or alluded to or is this just the, the pervasive atmosphere everywhere in the show this book starts off in the nation of Jorhas, mm-hmm. which is on Wildmount, and campaign two that group of that adventure party went to Jorhas and actually had quite a, uh, I'd say one big, huge arc in Jorhas. Campaign one, there was a, a little bit of time that was spent in Marquette, in Corel, which is where the rest of this book takes place. The Town of Beasts, we did see in campaign two. They weren't there for very long, so that we did, it wasn't flushed out all that much. But mm-hmm. in campaign one, when they went to Ancarel, some of the locations that is described in that city, Matthew described on the stream to the characters. So I was reading it just doing total flashback. Now, as to events or anything like that, never before, and any critter out there who's listening is going to catch me on this, and I'm going to correct you, just listen. Never before has anything in this book been mentioned until last Thursday in that game. And Matthew made a just a small little mention of the Elixion. And Matthew commented on him, mentioned him because he was born under the Aruidus moon. Yep. Yep. And that, and it was a quick beat. If you didn't catch it, you didn't catch it. But very quickly, yep. he mentioned the name and moved on because so, it was semi-pertinent. That's very interesting that they're starting to introduce aspects of the Aruidian to the game right now. How is it introduced? Is it like, is it something that's going on or is it just kind of like a reference in the background? We've always known there was two moons. At some point, we heard their names. It wasn't a huge thing. It was, okay, what time of year? What month are we in? Well, do roll your nature check to figure out where the moon and the season, whatever, or what time of night is it or whatever. In this campaign, campaign three, that they, I think we're on 19, I think 20 is being, they're streaming 20 right now as we're recording. Yeah, I saw your comment in the chat that the, the live stream just started. It's starting to become a plot point for one of the characters. We'll see. It literally, it was like I said, that was last episode where he mentioned um, Alexion. We're just starting to dig into that and mm-hmm. we'll see where it goes. Cool. That's the next thing that I wanted to get into is, again, being the resident mechanics guy, I wanted to get into kind of the Ruidium and how that all played together and just in general. And again, so basically the Ruidium is a an element, a descendant fallen from this uh, this second moon on the over the continent here. And the core kind of feature of Ruidium is that Ruidium is the stuff of corruption, right? It is It will corrupt beings that come in contact with it. It will corrupt beings who misuse it. It will, and all that sort of thing. I really like the way that is used as a plot element throughout, but also in a really well-crafted game mechanic to introduce elements such as exhaustion and stuff like that. Not only that, it's also specifically intrinsic to being able to explore the Nether Deep itself. Yeah, exactly. Carrying a Ruidium weapon gives you the ability to breathe water. Yep. Gives you the uh, swim speed equal to your walking speed and gives you resistance to the crushing pressure of the Nether Deep itself once you enter it. So 
the ruidium in the end becomes this, an essential mechanic. It's not even an option. Even if you're like, dude, I don't want I don't want ruidium corruption. You've still got to carry one if you want to be able to navigate down there. That or you have to stay within 30 feet of whoever's got the whoever's got the jewel. But I don't think the jewel protects you from the pressure. And then you're going to take a ridiculous amount of damage every minute. Right, exactly. So, like, the, it's, the jewel it's really just lets you travel in the first place. Like it, it's yeah. The jewel is like a plot device that tells you what's going on. And it's not even revealed until what, chapter two or chapter three. I don't think it was mentioned in the show, but there is another element that Matthew had in uh, campaign one that comes from white stone. And in fact, it's named for it. It's white stone, but it's called residuum. Yep. Remember residuum. Um, okay. So residuum can be used. So it's like ruidium is like the opposite of residuum. They both can be used in spells too, but residuum is just, it's a lot, it's better for you. And ruidium right. similar to its name is right. really bad for you. It's right. the anti. So. Yeah. And it's interesting that while it's named after the moon, the source of it in the book that's being fought over doesn't come from the moon. It actually comes from Elixion or the Apothenon himself and this self-created mental prison that they're rotting in of the nether deep. And it's part of the corruption that's coming out of it that people are crafting these weapons out of. And yeah. So. so I wondered, so I'm going to go a, a little tinfoil hat on that front here for a second, because I uh -huh. think given how much they played, and this is never explicitly written in the book, but it's more just how I interpreted it, I think maybe, but given Elixian's relationship to the moon of Rewidian, is it one of, it's one of those like self-fulfilling things, right? Is it, because you know, right. it says that it's it's named that because of its it's how much it looks like the moon. I mean, yeah. we know that it's created through kind of Elixian's own emotional pain and everything like that. But Elixian's right. relationship with the moon is very tangential to his very sense of being. So it's mm -hmm. one of those like his pain made manifest makes these weapons, yeah. and he's related to the moon. So it's got this whole. It's like right, a physical it's, it's manifestation of the curse that's haunted him his whole life. His, exactly. Yeah, which is in fact caused by being born under the moon in that <laughs> crossed that star-crossed kind of way and his whole life he of course had to fight against that trope and trying to make himself a hero to account yeah. for all of the negative things that happened as this curse followed him but yep and, and actually when matthew brought it up in the last session his last session every single person besides alexion that he mentioned that well that his npc imparted on the, the player characters every single one he said either met was either significant to history in a bad way or lived under the curse because people outed them but that there was a lot of people that were probably born under under ruidus that didn't admit to anybody that they were so that they wouldn't have that stigma hmm. i did want to touch on this a little bit too in that from a storyteller point of view man alive the creatures that are tainted by this ruidian yes are no joke they are no joke at all. Because again, like that's, I, I will say, we, we've alluded to this before, but I was lucky enough to go ahead and play test part of the game here when the book was, before the book was announced. And mm. we, the chapter that we ran was the chapter where um, they first descend down into the, the flooded city and have to go through the, the cathedral, it, the, 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 the temple of, of, of Coralon there, and they first get their first interaction with the Ruidian. And basically, mm -hmm. as you're descending down there, what happens is you get attacked by one of those Ruidian sharks, the kind of like half undead. I've tried, I'm blanking on what they're even called now, but the. Oh, uh, I know why you're misremembering that mechanic now, too. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because what. So that. And, and so that's. You're exactly right. When we did our class warfare episode, 
when I remembered the Ruidium, I was like, oh, Ruidium weapons cause exhaustion when you get hit by them. And that's not the case. They cause exhaustion to the wielder if they roll a natural right. one. However, Because they're blended the, with other materials. They're not pure Ruidium. Exactly. However, the creatures that are tainted by Ruidium, and I'm talking about the, the corrupted giant shark. I'm not sure why I couldn't remember that. The corrupted giant shark, when it mm-hmm. hits you, causes exhaustion. The and, environment and that, later hits you and causes you environment. Uh, yeah, you're going to be totally. so exhausted by the time you finish this yeah. adventure. <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah, yeah. So exhaustion becomes very real, and I will say that was that was one of our pieces of feedback. Is that holy crap? If that initial battle goes badly, and I will fully admit that when we did the playtest, our initial battle went badly. So that to the point that when we finally got to the temple itself, there were multiple people in the party that had more than one level of exhaustion already. I think one of us had three, a couple of us had two. It was a party of six or eight players. If your characters are already starting to suffer exhaustion at that point, that is a big mechanical deal that's really going to taint the rest of the way through the through the mission here. That was part of our feedback. It, it's, it is no joke. The one thing about the rhodium corruption that I did find a little bit uncertain is when I first read it, it, it seemed to imply that the levels of exhaustion you obtained from rhodium corruption couldn't be removed. But then it also has another mechanic where once you've obtained corruption, every time from that point on, when your exhaustion level increases or decreases by one, you take 1d10 psychic damage, mm-hmm. which implies that you can decrease your exhaustion. So I would assume that if you get a level of exhaustion from Ruidium poisoning today, you can rest and recuperate the exhaustion even though the rest of the effects remain? Exactly. So there's a difference between the corruption that you get from Ruidium and the exhaustion that you get from Ruidium. Right. You can only end the corruption with a wish spell, divine interruption, divine intervention, but simply removing all levels of exhaustion from the creature do not remove the corruption. What about you guys? What did you think about some of the uh, the aspects of the campaign? What are specific aspects of the campaign that you guys wanted to talk about? I liked the way just introductions, like the way they step into and out of scenes and sections of the campaign. I thought it was really masterful. They gave good ideas of like when to get, or like how people would enter. And my favorite example of this is when they get to Bazazan. I love how you get there and there's a quick initial encounter. And that's the tone for how people react to you. Yeah. And what you do matters. Mm-hmm. It's not written like you have to do the thing. It's written, do whatever you would do. By the way, if you do it, people are going to think about you one way or the other, whatever you do. And and, and this is where I'm not going to give the spoilers, but I think it's brilliant. As a storyteller, as a person who writes games, there's something to be learned from that. Like You can be a little narrative and directive, but you can still give a lot of choice within that and still get to the same ends. So how you get to the end and how that's flavored is what changes based on what you do in that initial quick encounter. And it is really designed to give you, and I think more so than I even do in my own games, in a single adventurer's day, two, three quick encounters that are likely to be combat, depending on how you navigate them, before you get to something big. And I think that's really well done. I love the fact that it's designed very quickly. You could snap through this. This is the perfect game for a weekday game of people who have real jobs and families and kids. You could play this game very well because each of these encounters seem really snappy, very quick, very good to get through. 
but you could literally do it one 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 encounter at a time. And because it's done by Milestone, personal favorite of mine, mm-hmm. you still get the ability to go through. And I think it works very cleanly. I, I, I just love that. Introductions, consequences of actions, relationships. Those are things I love in my games. This really has it, you know, in spades. One of the things that I really liked about this, and it's just me coming from a critter point of view, is the little bits that he gives us, or I guess I really should say that they give us. Um, like I said, it starts off in, in Jorhas, which that was part of campaign two. It ends up in Marquette, which is part of campaign one. The current campaign is right now set in Marquette. So mm-hmm. we haven't been to Ancarel, but we're in, he's building more on that continent. Right. And one of the things you- I loved talking about that depth and detail that you're enjoying as a critter, I love that it is chock full of just that depth and detail that doesn't have to be there. It's extraneous to the overall story. But it brings the world to life, like we're constantly talking about ways that you can bring your own campaign to life. One of the examples is just the entire inclusion of the Wall of the Unforgotten and Bazazan. It doesn't have specific narrative impact on the game, but the wounded guard you meet in the infirmary that gives you a token to take to the wall, which brings you there so you learn the little bit of lore that this wall is where they put a token of remembrance for people that are lost and that new soldiers because they're afraid they haven't made friends yet. Nobody will leave a token, send their own token when they think they're they're. Mm. It was endearing and like a great detail to, to bring right in there and the specific uses of the life dome and how it works. Yeah. It's an engagement point. So huge amount of depth put in there for that. Hey there travelers. Do you want early access to all of our episodes? How about exclusive content, live broadcasts, and the chance to throw dice with your favorite hosts and fellow fans? You can do all that by signing up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. But wait, there's more. For the next month, you can get a free coffee mug for signing up at the adventurer level, plus adventurer level Patreons automatically get complimentary copies of our latest book, The Traveler's Guide to the Multiverse, available on DMs Guild. We love doing this show for y'all, and your support helps us keep creating and producing great content for you. We have tiers to fit any budget for a monthly commitment, so join us today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. I do have one. One thing that I would say I would do differently. Ooh. Okay, I want to hear mm-hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. Dive in. And it is 100% in Chapter 6 for anybody at home who wants to follow along. I'm flipping right now. (laughs) Location N20, Many Eyes. The Cavern of Many Eyes is wicked cool. All right. And it's got these mirrors. And if you, and they show scenes of Elixian's past, which is wicked cool. And you can read each one. And I'm not going to read them out for y'all. But if a character steps directly in front of the mirror, it will shift and show a scene of their past, which they are now asked to describe. Mm-hmm. which I think is wicked cool. We do collaborative world building and improv stuff all the time, but some people struggle with it and it's not just asking them to, it's then putting a positive and a negative if they don't do a good job. And that I do not like mm. at all because if they do well, they get inspiration. If they do okay, nothing happens. If they do a bad job or they can't come up with anything, they take psychic damage 
and they're, and they're incapacitated, incapacitated for, for one minute. And I don't like that at all because I've got a yeah. lot of players who are awesome players and they are great role players. But if you ask them on the spot to do something like that, they're going to freeze like a deer in the headlights and that's not fair to them. So like Strixhaven here, I think the mechanic got too specific. It should have left mm-hmm. it as they'll see a scene from their own and you can award inspiration if they come up with something epic. Yep. And ended there. It should not have a negative. Let me give you one alternative to that, because I think that part of the, I think that part of the reason uh, that the negative is there is to, again, to represent this emotional pain that Elixian is building out throughout the nether. And so I think that the, I think that the negative, the psychic damage negative plays an important part of the story there. However, you're absolutely right that, that while be While collaborative world building can have a negative, I think that the collaborative world building negatives are still dice driven, right? So the only time I, you know, anytime I do collaborative world building, and Jen, you've seen this in the AP, the only time that I, the, that you get a negative from a collaborative world building thing is if you roll a natural one, because natural ones are always bad, right? So it doesn't really matter, but it's not related to how well do you do the thing; it's what happens right. on the die. So right. what I would suggest is. Instead of being whether or not the player does a good job or not, just make it a charisma check, a charisma save. That's make a, a charisma choice. save against the mirror. If you roll, you get the benefit. Then you get the benefit. And if you roll poorly, you get the psychic damage. I also think that kind of weighing those two together, 22 points of psychic damage versus inspiration, I'm not sure that balances very well either. I'm not sure that's like a tit for tat, like equality. If you do really well, you get inspiration. I don't know. Like that's maybe, maybe that could be a little bit stronger too. But Make it dice driven. Give it. Give the player a roll mechanic to to get that. I would think that if you wanted to balance it, you would give them some kind of um, shield for the same amount of psychic protection, so they basically yeah. are shielded from X amount of psychic damage, and mm-hmm. then that temporary psychic hit points or something. Yeah, something like that. So then, so then they could use that to. Against any yep. future psychic attacks, since the area is riddled with it, that would be th- that to me would be a good thing. Yeah. Or a reroll versus your next ruidium corruption or something like that. That I think. Well, I mean, that's effectively yeah. that's what a inspiration would do. For. Yeah, yeah. But and I also think, I think making it more specific to the environment would probably be better than inspiration as well. Yeah, I think that giving a a batch of temporary psychic hit points though speaks to something I, I know this episode hasn't aired yet but when we were talking with Sadie Lowry who was the writer of chapter six and she started talking about developing like a second set of hit points that kind of go along with your kind of your main hit points I think that if you start creating yeah. a like temporary psychic hit in her points, first it version gets, it gets a yeah. little close to that and I know specifically yeah. that they looked Maybe. at that and said that's way too confusing we should not do that yeah. <laughs> inspiration is probably a good compromise actually in that case so that's right. per- perhaps we re- perhaps we rescind our our, our, our thought on that. But I do absolutely agree with you that the negative should be dice driven. The negative should not be performance of the player driven. Jen, you want to weigh in as a player, how you feel about the impromptu you're on the spot versus See, let's put you on the spot to ask you about how you feel about being put right? on the spot. Jen. <laughs> right. I know she can handle being put on the spot. I, well, I- See, and I know that I can, but we have a friend who started a game and Glenn was in it and his wife was in it and I was in it. And it was, there was a lot more than I was expecting of, you came on a thing. What does it look like? And I was like, wait a minute. In my head, I went, don't you know what it looks like? You're we talk about Spire like. on, on the semi-regular. Okay. So yeah. And, and it really threw me for a loop. And I was like, wait, what? 
Well, and no, when you first started Spire, you hadn't done as much of the collaborative world building with Josh right. either. I bet if you restarted Spire now, you would do much better than you did the and I'm, than you and felt I'm like, about it the first time. I'm a wise ass and I'm and I'm a smart ass and I'll you guys know I'm gonna give you normally I can give you as much as I get. But Sometimes, every once in a while, yeah, I can be a deer in the headlights. So some, and the thing is, too, is something like this, it's not just if they do a good job and, and if you catch somebody unawares and unprepared for it. It's because there's no die involved, it becomes the choice of the DM. Right. In my opinion, did you tell a good story or did I right. think your story was crap? Right. Mm-hmm. Which and, brings and in favorites and punishments. And- exactly. As a storyteller, I try to stay away from... Look, we make value judgments. That's why I love Milestone. It takes value judgments out of it. Whenever I've run XP systems, because role play is important, I am effectively adding uh, a value judgment to how people role play. Now, I remove that by setting a milestone. When you get to X point, whether I state it explicitly or if it's woven into my story implicitly, then that's something that I know when I'm planning to up levels. So how people role play, I don't have to value one player's role play over another's. I can just play the game with people at the level they wish to play the game. If they really want to engage and get into the deep conversation and get into the, the that deep, man, I'm sweating it role play scenario, let them. And if they just want to hang back, help out the party, do their thing while they're at the table, let them. Everybody has a lot more fun when they're able to engage in the game at the level they're comfortable with. Right. I try not to add value judgments to that level of comfort. And I exactly. think that's what we're talking about. That's not truly a knock because this is an amazing book. This is hands down. And I'll straight up say it hands down the best hard written, hard book written, like full campaign book in terms of how well it's put together, not just um, in terms of flow, but mechanically and story that I've read. I love it. So this is not a knock on the book at all. It's just the one piece that I would do differently because of. We would adapt that for our tables. And Josh, you had made a point about collaborative role building being dice driven. I'm right with you. For me, I'm trying to build my more recent collaborative role building tables with the really bad option being the one, but having slightly worse uh, or slightly bad options being two through five. And then having great and somewhat good 15 through 20. And then everything else fill, fall somewhere, just fill out the story in between. So I'm definitely going with a more tiered system than you typically do with just one super good and one super bad. I know the uh, collaborative world building tables I've been building for Strike Team are designed on that principle. The only one other thing that I would say, and in our interviews, they did say that they weren't specifically going for a horror vibe. They were not going for a horror style adventure. But between the Jimmering Mouthers and the various mutated creatures throughout it and what Apothenon is going through, especially once you're delving into the Nether Deep, which is effectively a physical manifestation of a shattered psyche, that I would throw out, just be prepared, that there is, there's definitely some elements of both body horror and psychological horror in there. They're just not taken to that dark extreme level that's going to totally give you the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, but totally. might fall a few times. Yeah, I really like the Gloomstalker coming. The fact that they have these creatures that are escaping, that are doing things, and the just the way they describe people being not nonchalant, but 
they're aware that it happens. The small civilian population that kind of just goes about their life and, oh, we had another attack and they just go about taking care of their dead. And then the way the story invites you to partake in the aftermath of those fights. It's very reminiscent of some of the better war movies. I'm thinking of Saving Private Ryan, where they're in that in the town and one, the one guy goes to try to help and and they're like no don't do that they're snipers and then he gets tagged and that whole mm. it, it really gave me that vibe and different elements of band of brothers in the pacific it really had that this is war feel to it that i don't get for many fantasy games it really brought that home they yeah. did it well in lord of the rings with rohan and the, how they were prepared and helms deep and that big fight like people were prepared for war but this was this is that feel just for the gamer perspective it also runs like a video game it's very much structured similar to the chapters of diablo as you Mm -hmm. go through them and even some of the the elements of the fights and the boss fights I, i definitely can feel that and it makes total sense because online gaming and mmorpgs have totally exploded the immersive world concept and they've generated so much that it's natural that it's going to start to to cross over some too but i loved it i thought it was great totally even in chapter four they lean into that heavily where it's like you've got in this chapter there are like three or four different tracks that you can take through Mm. this chapter to get to chapter five and each of them has two delivery missions a mission where you have to go find an npc i I say that a little city doing doing quests yeah but you've got to go ahead you've got to do some side quests here to go ahead and get that stuff taken care of and i think that the way that they structured that you're right it is very video game based i think your allusion to to diablo is right on because that's the feel that this has in general mm-hmm. kind of has that kind of Diablo-esque feel to it which I think is fantastic so spoiler yep, alert before. we're going to talk about this a little bit with Sadie yeah, and in our interview with her because she was one of the heavy writers in those last couple of chapters in she particular. wasn't in fact she, she wrote chapter 6 and then yeah yeah, 5 and 6 I think and she is a big gamer so she that's talked about a little gamer. bit in terms of her but Jen Favorite parts of the book or any parts of the book that we haven't talked about yet that you really think we need to cover? So the one thing that I caught, and I think I messaged you very briefly about Glenn, was there was one thing that was a lore bit that they missed. And I was Uh like, why didn't they explain that? Why didn't they explain that? And it goes back to when you go into a new section and... It explains what the the frame of mind that the the rivals have, mm-hmm. and specifically, it was Irvon. It describes Irvon's frame of mind as the possibility of traveling to another continent far removed from the Lux and Beacons terrifies Irvon, but his commitment to his companions outweighs his fear, and he chooses to stay with them and face his mortality head on. Even when they went and described his character and who he was at the very beginning, they really didn't go into that. They mentioned that he's consecrated, which means in in Jorhas, if you're consecrated, I'm sorry, consecrated, if you when you die, your you're soul basically goes to the Lexan, and then it gets reincarnated into another creature within a hundred mile space. So you have to die within a hundred miles of a Luxon beacon to be reincarnated. So if he's on another continent, that's it. He's done. He's never being re- reincarnated again. Oh. You're not wrong. Cause anybody who missed that in the general lore part of the book, yeah. because it is discussed cause I read it, but it, if it yeah. mentioned there I, Irvine's I, feelings, just then that would hearken people back to it to say, and 
if he dies outside of the range of one of those beacons, his soul won't be reincarnated. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I, when I read it, I didn't pick that up at all. And I remember once you said it, that's the way that it works because it is written in the lore of the book in the beginning. I found actually that when they discussed it, sorry, I'm going to talk about another book, but Explorers Wide to Guide to Wildmount, they go into that in a lot more detail. Just in, when they're describing Jorhas and their, their, it's not really a religion, but it's their belief system. Right. It's a faith is the way that they describe it. And that might be why. That may be the answer. Um, to your own question, because in the Wild Mountain book, which is a world book, mm-hmm. they're giving you the main hunk of the lore. And in this one, they're saying, we've already introduced it. You've already seen it. So in the beginning of this one, we gave you a blurb about it, which is why I remember it. And then here we're going to mention it. And it's on you to remember it beyond that. But yeah, just right. a, a, one more line in that sentence would have helped complete that circle. Yep. And for those of us who are late to the party, who even though I've had explorer's guide to wild mount for a while i was basically cherry picking from the book i wasn't reading it fully though it's now in my stack of books to be read thoroughly i would have missed that entirely and i actually did miss that entirely i (laughs) as i was reading i didn't even pick up that it was there in remembrance i must have missed that part of the overview or not really picked up on it at all I really loved the way that it's almost written one of those decision books from when we were kids. Mm-hmm. If you, choose you know, your, choose, if your you, own choose your own adventure. That's what it was. Yeah. Just because it almost every beat you could be the hero or the rivals could be, or they're going to like you or they're not going to like you. And there's consequences for every single one of those choices and every single one of those actions. That is a fantastic thing that we should talk about that we haven't talked about. Choose I'm your so own adventure books. I'm so glad you brought that up. That throughout this adventure, the thing that one of the things that caught me the most about it was your party might not always be the center of the story. If you let the rivals right. beat you out, instead there's mm-hmm. a second way that the story is written so that you're chasing yeah. behind them and they're the heroes. Mm-hmm. And I and, thought and that you're was the bad fantastic. Guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you may, not, you may not necessarily be the bad guys, but you are, especially if you let them the get it by, if, if they were the ones yeah. gifted with the jewel and now you're trying to take it from them so you exactly. can become the heroes. Then you're the thief that stole my thing that was going to make me grand. And yep. if you were playing it from their point of view, because yep. at some point in mm-hmm. the story, they could steal the jewel from you. You do then become the bad right. guys. You stole and, the thing and you're stealing and, the, the glory. Particularly when you look at the fantasticness of the rivals, too. It's not yeah. just the system of interaction between the party and them. It's the fact that throughout the adventure that you're in competition. You're, yeah. in, you're mm-hmm. in a race. Particularly for Ayo Jabe, who her base desire is to be the hero, right? That's right. that's why she is a rival to you, is that if your party does not help her achieve that goal, look at every way that you that your relationship with her goes up or goes down. Can you help her achieve her goal of being the hero? And right. if you can't, your relationship with her sours. And if you can help her, your relationship increases. And because that's her driving goal. And right. so that's that's what I was talking about way out at the beginning of the episode with the relationship system is that it's not just crafted more with, with better context than when we talked about with Strixhaven, but it's also crafted very smartly where the decisions and the way that things go up and down makes sense. It feeds mm-hmm. into the story in a really great way. If you all work the friendly angle, Ayojabe can learn to be the hero without being the only hero and their party can support your party and still obtain some hero status and she'll be all right with that. 
it's, it's got so much depth in different ways that it could go. It's, it really is incredible. Uh, All right. With that, let's try to go ahead and pull this to a close. I'm going to go around the room for one from everybody here. I'm going to give you all a second to think about it. But I want you to talk about one thing that you liked from the book that has not come up yet. And I will even fall on the sword and start so that you all can think about this a little bit here. I was going to go ahead and compliment you because you pointed out several of the things that I wanted to go ahead and talk about as just being really cool. And that's the best thing that I can say about this book is that there are just so many things that are really cool. The one that did not really come up, and Lee Winicki, you were talking about how good the Bazozan chapter is, chapter three. The Bazozan chapter is amazing. It's fantastic. One of the coolest things in there was the whole concept of the whaling statue, which is one of those really cool narrative bits. It's a really cool kind of set piece that doesn't have too much. I mean, it has like like story hook pieces to it, but it's not like a super integral part of chapter three. It's just a really cool part of it. But man, was just the mm. whole concept of the way that it was introduced and the way that it's described really super evocative. And I really enjoyed that. Lewinika, why don't you go next? So one of the things that I really liked, and I don't know if it's unique to this book or something that's been in other campaign books, when you went from location to location, there was these huge tables of types of encounters that could happen during that time frame. The Road to Bazozan, for yep. example, had a number of different encounters. Reading them, I was like, I would have fun running every single one of them. You're going to give your party a, a die roll to do that. If you've got a game that meets more frequently, and again, we are doing this by milestone, make the road a little longer. Make it two or three sessions between. Run each mm -hmm. of those encounters. You could expand or contract the size and scope of your game by using these tables. Yep. And so the one thing I don't think we pointed out is how useful those tables are. That's how to use them within the campaign. From a lifting perspective, I, especially if you're doing anything that has to do with demons, that type of thing, I can walk wholesale into this book, grab the right chart, and now I've got things that I can put into my other campaigns because it's all there. And I just think that's brilliant. T roll tables, Josh, you love them. I I've never I been do. I've never been a great user of them because I have traditionally bought so little adventure modules, which is where you'll find the most roll tables so mm -hmm. i've not really dealt with them a whole lot in my games but looking at this i'm seeing them i've written a few adventures and i think there's some benefit to saying here's some random encounters as opposed to prescribing the only encounter on the road here's some randomness okay. so every right. game can be slightly different if you're expanding a little bit and extending that voyage and you're using all of the encounters to flesh it out yeah we're doing milestone but think about it you're running a game that campaign arc is designed for characters three through 13. If on the road to Bazixan, while you're going down the Emerald, Emerald loop towards the Emerald loop caravan stop, you do all of the encounters and then you do all of the ones following the stop too. You could throw another level at your party and it's not going to mm -hmm. totally imbalance the game. Nope. All right, Glenn, how about uh, carry on? So the one thing that I have isn't, is, is the let's crafted start to finish as an epic sweeping tale. This takes you across the entire world. Is Arcadia the world? Alexandria, thank you. Yeah. Arcadia is the magazine. <laughs> it takes you across the entire world of Alexandria by the time you start out and, and then have to trek across the wastes to get to Bazaxan. And then you're magically 
using a scroll of teleportation to transport yourself to another continent. And now you've moved to the city of Ankorel. How do you pronounce Ankorel. it? Ankorel. And you have the sunken ancient city underneath it. It's literally, it's very narratively driven. And that is, that's a fact. It's got lots of ways that you can get from point A to point B and different outcomes as you go. But it's designed to take you from point A to point B. So accept the fact that it's going to be narrative, especially as you get closer to the final conclusion. There's going to be a little bit less room for specific choice if you want to follow the story. But by that point, trust me, you'll be hooked enough in the story that you're going to follow it and it'll be fine. But it's like an epic tale like Lord of the Rings or one of one of the other fantasy movies that you've watched that started in the small town and spanned the course of the entire globe and ended in these grand events that changed the world. That's what this is in a nutshell. It's, and they do a great job of it. Yep. Totally agree. Totally agree too. I love the scope of the book. I love the scope of the quest. I can't say enough good things about it. I am here uh, for it. I'm here for it. Exactly. Yeah. And Jen, saving the the best for last here. I So I'm going to take this again from a critter point of view. <laughs> I What I really liked was in campaign one and even now in campaign three, in campaign one, they spent a little bit of time in in Ankarel. They went outside of Ankarel to Dallin's closet for it was a one shot. But they really they were there for a little bit of time. They didn't do a whole heck of a lot. The only other person we know from Marquette, which is the continent, you'll know this guy is Gilmore of Gilmore's Glorious Goods, hmm. the shopkeeper. He's from Marquette. So. Oh. This goes, pardon the pun, this goes so much deeper <laughs> into Ankarel, <laughs> and your characters get to explore Ankarel so much more than they did in the in campaign one. Campaign three, we haven't even gotten it to, to Ankarel at all. They're in a completely other new town that we've never seen before, or we've just left to and gone to another new town that we've never even seen before. Expanding on the, the little bits that Matthew had given us and the characters before, just in the one city is I love it. I love it. I love it. And that's as a creator. That's why I bought the book. I obviously wasn't going to run it, but I bought it because I'm a critter. It be <sighs> Glenn. <laughs> what? I don't know if I'm there yet. It's I was a simple, I innocent think, question. I just said, why I not? know I, because <laughs> I think I, I know that I could DM at some point, but I don't think I'm there yet. I don't think I'm comfortable enough yet. Fair enough. Yeah, this may not be a good starting DM campaign, but definitely for those who are a little bit longer in the tooth and for those who are looking for a fun, exciting challenge, they've DM'd a little bit here or there. This is a spot. This is, a, this is the one. I, I think to that point, Lewinika, I'm not sure if this was something I mentioned to you or maybe mentioned in, in chat or something like that. One of the things that I was thinking about when I bought this book was how much fun it would be to run and uh, and whether or not this may be uh, this may be where our Patreon actual play game goes eventually after it finishes up its current line of thought. And who knows? We're gonna we're gonna be the arch enemies plot line that is currently going on is going to last for quite a while. That's there's still quite a bit of uh, fruit on that vine as that as that quest line is being resolved here. All right. That is our episode for this week. Jen, thank you so very much for popping on here and, and helping us beef up our critical role chops this month. Uh, this thank week, rather. You for I, inviting I hope that me. you enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. I have uh, one last question for you three, though. Uh oh, sure. So, officially, 
because you guys have now gone and seen the show, you guys are starting to get into this whole critical role. You're going to spend a month with it and everything else. Mm -hmm. And you're blaming me for being the monkey on your back. Does that mean I don't like where this is going? If you guys, <laughs> if you guys become critters, I can take the credit. I'm sure they'll send you the toaster. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I give credit where credit is due. Sure. I have not sat down to go ahead and listen through all of the back episodes, but I am quickly adapting to I mean, this book in particular is really making me a fan of kind of the worlds that are being built. And the Taldore book was just as good. Also, while I would not call myself a critter, I do really very deeply appreciate the uh, the content that they put out. So I am absolutely a fan of the design principle that Matt Mercer and his group, both at the table and the and the teams he's been they have been putting together for their various products. I am absolutely a fan of that design principle and, and the creators and the content that they've been doing. I really like what I'm getting and I hope to continue doing so. Yep. I like them. I think they're neat. I really love the products that they're putting out. Yeah. I doubt that I will become a super fan and it's because of the simple fact that I don't have time to listen to a full D&D session. That's why I loved the animated series and i hope that yep. we get more of them and i don't mean to be that guy who's i just want the animated because it's not the case it's that with all the other things that i have going on in my life i don't have time to sit down and listen to or watch a full stream D session that i'm yep. not taking notes on or trying to glean things from the things i'm already doing i agree um, I, so no i get it i I'll, get I'll be, it i'll be a sideline fan as opposed to a full-on critter more than likely but i like them i think they're neat all right, let's 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 put a cap on on the episode for this week. Uh, so next week, we come back with our amazing interview with with Sadie Lowry. And if you're looking at your call, the Netherdeep book, look right on page one there in the writer's section. That's where you will see Sadie Lowry's name. Make sure that you check us out next week to go ahead and listen to that. And yeah. And then we're going to, uh, after that, we've got our our week of the Blood Hunter, where we will uh, be talking about the Blood Hunter class and a very special class warfare featuring our friend Scald from Awfully Queer Heroes. So that'll be, a, that will be a good time. We'll be, uh, that'll be coming up in just a couple of weeks here. Anyway, once again, Jen, thank you very much for joining us. Lunica, Glenn, thank you as always. I appreciate, appreciate you as always. We will talk to you again next week. Thank Have you very much, everybody. everybody. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, at TT Journeys, by joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. And remember, if you want early access to all of our episodes, a chance to drop dice with your favorite hosts, and maybe even appear in one of our actual plays, you can join our Patreon to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. You're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible. We would appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays, and every Tuesday features our actual play episodes. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler along our path, we did you shade and sweet water.